Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 77 of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're going to be talking about Braveheart on your They May Take Our Lives, But They Will Never Take Our Freedom podcast. I'm Andy Kay. And I'm Alan. So this week, Alan is joining me in Matthew's place while he's still off gallivanting somewhere after his wedding. (laughs) Alan has been on the show before, way back when we talked about Dead Poets Society last year. So welcome back to the show, Alan. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm really happy to be here. And I'm excited to talk to you about one of my favorite movies from when I was in high school, which we're about the same age. So I really need to know how you managed to not see Braveheart. (laughs) Well, Braveheart came out in 1995. So I was 13. And I was really much more interested in watching movies like Clueless and Casper and Jumanji that all came out that same year. And Mm. probably the, the only kind of drama type movie that I really watched that year was Dangerous Minds. I don't know why that was the one that I fell in love with. I think it was because it was Michelle Pfeiffer. But I was definitely more into like Clueless and Casper and Jumanji. So Braveheart was <laughs> something I looked at with kind of disdain. It was like, I oh, no. watch that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can actively remember, like I remember actively saying I don't want to watch that movie. Yeah, Dangerous Minds is uh, a great pick, though, if you're going to watch one dramatic movie from that year. And actually, Mel Gibson is in Casper. I don't know if you remember that. For like a second, he's in it. I saw that uh, when I was looking up his filmography, and I I don't remember it. Mm -hmm. Um, Because really, all I remember about Casper is Christina Ricci and Devin Sala. (laughs) Yeah, because they're, yeah, that's the whole thing. I think... uh, Somebody turns into him for like a second. That movie is chock full of weird cameos, actually, like Dan Aykroyd's in it and uh, a whole bunch of people. Yeah. Casper's weird. Yeah. But we're talking about Braveheart. (laughs) We are talking about Braveheart. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the movie? All right. Uh, Like you said, Braveheart debuted in 1995 and it was written by Randall Wallace. I wonder if he's related to William Not related. Not related. He's not related. (laughs) Uh, And it was directed by Mel Gibson, who was also the star, William Wallace, in the movie. So that's always tricky. I always have a lot of respect for people who do that, like Clint Eastwood will direct and star in a movie. Uh, I don't know how people do that, but I'm always impressed by it. It was nominated for 10 Academy Awards. It won five, including Best Picture and Best Director. And it has an estimated budget of around $75 million and grossed over $210 million worldwide. So pretty successful movie, uh, both critically and, you know, like money-wise. Yeah, it's interesting that, that you said that about him starring in the movie because that was the only way he could get it made. He wanted to make this movie so badly and the studios didn't want to do it unless he agreed to star in it too because he was, like 1995 was kind of peak Mel Gibson. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. And that was the only way they would let him make it. They would fund it. So I had no idea about that. That's why the 20-year-old the William Wallace is really 40 years old in Braveheart. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That It does make that love story at the front end like really weird that he's like, I just came back. He's like, man, you've been gone for like almost 50 years. How does anybody remember you? Right? <laughs> That's funny. Well, um, when I was looking up all that stuff, IMDb uh, had a, a – pretty good synopsis it says uh for people who didn't get a chance to watch the movie yet or haven't you know aren't don't remember from way back in the 90s when they saw it william wallace is a scottish rebel who leads an uprising against the cruel english ruler edward the longshanks 
who wishes to inherit the crown of Scotland for himself. When he was a young boy, William Wallace's father and brother, along with many others, lost their lives trying to free Scotland. Once he loses another of his loved ones, William Wallace begins his long quest to make Scotland free once and for all, along with the assistance of Robert the Bruce. I'm really curious if the person who wrote that had ever seen the movie, because I'm pretty sure, (laughs) at least in the movie, he didn't do anything with the assistance of Robert the Bruce, except get captured. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I think I would probably pare that down to, after his wife was killed by one of the king's noblemen, William Wallace began a quest to free Scotland from the tyranny and rule of the English king. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's dead on. Yeah. Yeah. Assistance of Robert the Bruce. I think that's funny. (laughs) So how were you able to watch Braveheart? You said it was one of your favorites in high school. Is this one that you own? I don't. And we'll probably get into it. I don't have a lot of Mel Gibson in my collection um, Mm, in general. But I rented it on Amazon. I've seen it on Netflix a bunch of times, but we just had bad timing with this one and it, it wasn't there. But two bucks on Amazon. Yeah, it's not available on any of the subscription streaming services in the U.S. right now. So you either have to own it or rent it. And luckily for me, my partner owns about a bajillion movies, and this happened to be one of them. Oh, good. I didn't have to rent it. (laughs) Mel Gibson. Well, yeah, Mel Gibson. How familiar are you with like his movies, his acting career, directing stuff? So I was really surprised by this when I went and looked it up. I have seen a surprising amount of Mel Gibson movies in my life. Um, The earliest I've seen was 1993's The Man Without a Face, though I am like culturally aware of some earlier movies like Mad Max and Lethal Weapon, even though I haven't seen them. Mm -hmm. But then like he did this like rash of movies in the 90s and I saw all of them, Pocahontas, Ransom, Conspiracy Theory, The Patriot, What Women Want, Signs. And, of course, he wrote and directed The Passion of the Christ, um, which is kind of where my Mel Gibson period ended, was with The Passion of the Christ. And then last year, I watched Hacksaw Ridge and later found out that Mel Gibson had directed that, um, which surprised me. So, yeah, there's a lot of Mel Gibson stuff in there, even though there is kind of like a clear line of delineation of before and after. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, I've I've forgotten about Pocahontas, but yeah, he is the he is the guy in that uh, movie, isn't he? Yeah, he plays John Smith. Mm-hmm. It's really weird whenever I see clips from Pocahontas now, and I'm like, mm, right that face <laughs> does not match that voice. Okay. <laughs> yep. And the Hacksaw Ridge was also like nominated for Oscars and stuff. It's kind of considered a part of his so-called comeback uh, in Hollywood. Mm. So like those movies that you listed, I'm not seeing a lot of like I think of Braveheart as kind of like a war epic and a biopic, you know, like mashed Mm -hmm. together. Um, Are those the kind of movies that you like usually enjoy that you just sit down with some popcorn and like, let's watch a war epic? Uh, Not generally, but sometimes, Uh, you know, movies like Hacksaw Ridge, Saving Private Ryan. I did really enjoy The Patriot. Um, But I'm not often going to sit down and say, hey, this movie is about war. Let's watch it. (laughs) Um, Honestly, I think I watched The Patriot because Heath Ledger was in it. I love that movie. And nothing to do with Mel Gibson. (laughs) That movie is so good. Yeah. um, Biopics, I do tend to enjoy more because they're a, a story about a person's life. You know, and I always find it interesting to learn about other people. So generally, yeah. And then this movie kind of combined them. So it was interesting. 
Yeah, because we get the start with the little kid and go all the way to the end. So yeah, the you, end. Yeah. yeah, you get to see his life. So what were what did you expect about Braveheart? Like speaking of the end, um, did you see that <laughs> kind of thing coming? Well, I really only knew three things about this movie going into it, which is impressive considering how old this movie is. I knew one that it Mel Gibson, two. <laughs> Mel Gibson in blue war paint shouting an inspirational speech while on a horse. (laughs) Three, Mel Gibson shouting freedom. Yep. That's all I knew. I had like a vague possible awareness that he might die at the end, but I really didn't know because I didn't know the story of William Wallace Mm -hmm. at all. And, And the interesting thing is, is that none of those things are in the movie in the way that I expected them to be. I thought that the freedom bit was during the blue painted face inspirational speech, which I also thought was the climax of the movie. And so color me surprised when he's giving the speech and we're only halfway through. Right. Very, very long movie. (laughs) So yeah, I knew nothing about this movie and everything I expected was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it's nice to have your expectations thwarted, but sometimes that's an uncomfortable feeling. So did you enjoy watching Braveheart like in light of that? Oh, enjoy is just not the right word for a movie like this. Um, I was moved by this movie, mm-hmm. and I did become invested in the characters and the conflict, but I, I can't say that I enjoyed the pain and the torture and the, the death. Um, but I am glad I watched it. It's a, a real bummer ending. and uh... It was hard to watch. I have to say, so I, st- I put this movie in on Wednesday and had intended to watch it all on Wednesday night. And I kept trying to get my partner to watch it with me. And he kept saying, no, I don't want to watch that movie. No, I refuse to watch that movie. I don't want to watch it. And so I started watching it by myself. And I eventually coaxed him to come in and and sit with me. And he was mostly on his phone the whole time. And I ended up like 30 minutes in, I had to turn it off for some reason and I didn't get to finish it. So Thursday night, I turned it on again. And about halfway through, he did come back in and sit with me. And, you know, he was telling me that he's seen this movie like a dozen times. And so I'm like, then I don't understand. Why don't you want to watch it? You obviously like this movie. And when the movie's over and I'm sitting there crying and I looked at him and I said, that was really hard to watch. He said, now, I want you to think back to yesterday when I kept telling you I didn't want to watch this movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, yeah, I kind of get that now. (laughs) Super hard to watch. Yeah. And if you think about like, it's impossible for me to think about that ending, like as I watched it this time without also thinking about the fact that he directed The Passion of the Christ. And um, I know you haven't seen Lethal Weapon, but also like in a bunch of the Lethal Weapon movies, his character is often like tortured and um like like violently tortured and it's and it can be graphic even though those movies are like buddy cop movies there's some pretty like you're like this is hard to watch and there's he's interested as a storyteller in pain and torture and i don't know if that's related to like his religious beliefs you know as expressed in the passion of the christ or if that's just something that he's interested in like the visceral kind of in this case, literally, <laughs> how how movies force you to to experience that body empathy as you watch it. You know, as a storyteller, he seems interested in that somehow. Yeah. Um, it, actually, I think that's probably a good time to talk about 
one of the things that I wanted to make sure we mentioned. Mm-hmm. I was intrigued watching this now that we are in a post Game of Thrones world. Yeah. Watching the violence in this movie because there was a lot of violence and there was a lot of like I think probably for 1995 this was very 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 gory and very very dark. Yes. In a way that it's not quite now because there wasn't there really wasn't that much blood. Like yeah, we saw him like literally cave somebody's skull in, but it was just for a split second. There was no gory blood all over the the hammer or whatever and you know, we saw all these dead bodies everywhere, but there really wasn't that much blood. And and so that was an interesting thing to watch too because I'm accustomed like I'm desensitized to a lot of that gore now because of shows like Game of Thrones and shows like Westworld where the more blood the better and the more graphically you can show violence the better mm-hmm. and so it was it was different kind of watching this with that desensitization because at first I was like oh well, this isn't bad at all and then the more I kept watching it, even though there wasn't blood, it, oh God, it was, it was really hard to watch, especially the final scene. But even leading up to that, there were, there were times like I physically reacted to what I was seeing on the screen because you could hear things or you, you would see like somebody have a sword, like slicing from between their legs up and you wouldn't see the blood, but just the, the visceral reaction to seeing that depth of violence and pain. It was rough. Yeah. I remember seeing this as a teenager, like it must've been like a year after it came out. I didn't see this in the theater uh, the first time, but I can remember after the wife dies and he goes in for his revenge against that, whoever the Lord is there. I think he cuts off a guy's leg as he's like, that's, yes. yeah, that's part of the opening gambit. And I remember like I gasped and like put my hands on my face because like the blood mm-hmm. was splurting out and all this stuff. And I, you know, like I grew up on Kung Fu movies and like Friday the 13th and lots of scary, you know, like Freddy Krueger and stuff like that. Like I, I'm no, like I was no baby as far as seeing blood on a screen was, but it seemed realistic in a way and just like gut punching at that time, mm-hmm. like you said, in a pre game of Thrones world. And and when he catches that Lord and he cuts his throat the same way that they did oh, yeah. the girl and you, and you actually see the throat cut, not like you, they didn't show you with her, but they show you with him and you mm-hmm. watch the blood pour out. And I was like, Oh my God. Like that was seared into my mind when I saw that as a young man. And, um, yeah, the violence is, at that time, was really like a next level thing that I think really set the stage for some of the more hardcore scenes in Lord of the Rings, like when they're fighting the orcs and stuff, and on into Game of Thrones and Westworld. And those shows kind of owe a debt to The Sopranos and stuff. But definitely, I think Braveheart was a big part of turning up the volume in the 90s on what was acceptable in terms of violence. Right. And I I think Mel Gibson was a big part of that. Like I said, I think he's interested in that kind of violence, you know. Um, And I think that that kind of segues into the problematics of Mel Gibson as a person and, and kind of the struggle, like you said, as a modern person, like, watching this in a post Game of Thrones world, we're also watching this 
in a post Mel Gibson scandal world of like watching him on screen and thinking about the fact that he directed this and everything that that means. Yeah, we had questions from several of our listeners kind of asking us about this very issue. Um, And I wanted to specifically point out one from our friend Kate. She's at I Do Human Things on Twitter. And she said, I am curious if it's possible to watch it at this point without constantly thinking about Mel Gibson as a person. Can these two podcasters separate the art from ass? (laughs) So, Alan, can can you just kind of give us a quick rundown of what the Mel Gibson controversy is? Sure. So, like, um, back in 2006, um, Mel Gibson was caught speeding, like, 80 miles an hour in a 45-mile-an-hour zone. Uh, he had an open bottle of tequila. He was intoxicated. So, like, an extremely dangerous situation, both for him and, like, the people around him, which would be bad enough, but, you know, might be some Hollywood bad boy behavior. But as he was arrested, he cussed out the cops with a lot of, like, ethnic slurs. Um, One of the police officers was a woman, and he was very sexist and denigrating to her specifically, like, about her womanhood. And then after that, he, um, his girlfriend turned up, at the time his girlfriend turned up um, being beaten up and had recorded a lot of threatening conversations with him over the phone. Uh, He didn't know that he was being recorded, but she said that um, he knocked out her front teeth and he said, you deserved it. And then he went on to like threaten to put her in a rose garden and like all this stuff is public record. Like you can look it up pretty easily and and, uh, check up on it. So that, I mean, that's a death threat against uh, his girlfriend. And um, he was constantly using like anti-Semitic remarks, the N word, things like that in these recorded conversations and um, has been known to say things like Jews control all the banks and entertainment system, um, which is a a very anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that is toxic in a way that is, in my opinion, pure evil. So so basically, he's really just an all-around really terrible human being. Yeah, he's, uh, in my opinion, like irredeemable in terms of as an artist. Yeah. So how do we separate the art from the artist in a case like, like this? I know this, this has come up a lot recently, mm-hmm. you know, with people like Joss Whedon and other I I can't think of anybody else right off the top of my head but I know that this is constantly something that fans have to kind of come to terms with yeah so how how was it for you watching Braveheart again after all of this because I I can tell you from from my perspective I mean there is a clear line like the passion of the Christ was the last Mel Gibson movie I watched and that was in 2006 because Mm -hmm. after all of this stuff came out I mean yes his career kind of tanked a little bit (laughs) after that so there wasn't much happening until recently when he's kind of starting his comeback. Um, But it was easy for me at that point to draw a line and say, you know, I don't want to watch anything that Mel Gibson does. But it was also really easy to hold to that because there wasn't really any new content. (laughs) Right. And so when when it came up and, and it was time to watch this movie, I felt like I had to watch it because it really is a classic. It's a cultural classic for the United States. This movie was huge. And like you said, you did not understand how I could not have seen it. So it, it was something that I really like needed to do for the point of this show. 
And one of the first thoughts in my thought doc was I would be so much more enamored with this movie if I didn't know the things I know now about Mel Gibson. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it was easy to watch it at the time when he was a leading man and you didn't know all this stuff and to like believe in the virtue of William Wallace and not be thrown out. Um, I did sink into the movie, like to answer Kate's question as I watched it, I, I was able to let go and, and not think about Mel Gibson, especially through the love story. I always fall for that love story every single time. I think it's really well done. And, um, and then the turn that that creates, the energy that it gives the movie after. I mean, this movie's way too long, but um, it's like 45 <laughs> minutes of that love story. And then the way that it ends, you're just like, God, go kill every Englishman. Go do it, dude. <laughs> I'm into it. Yeah. So I don't know. Like, I, I've written about this on my blog. I had a whole thing, like you said, about Joss Whedon and how we have to be honest with ourselves about what these uh, what the bad behavior means and how we need to as consumers we have like a responsibility but also the power to use our our money to not support people who like Mel Gibson is very talented but there are also very talented people who are not anti-semitic violent to women and stuff like that and and we can support them and not support him and yeah I, I believe that's what you have to do. And when you're critiquing things like this, this is a classic movie. I think it earned the awards that it got at the time. As long as you have this discussion and you're honest about like, this is how I feel about the creator. I think it's fine to watch these things and think about them and, and have criticism as long as you include in them and you don't just ignore the fact, you know, that these people have bad behavior and um, should not be rewarded for it. Yeah. I, I also think, I agree with what our friend Lonnie Diane Rich says, that sometimes we like to try to separate the art from the artist when the artist is problematic, but you need to remember that there are some pieces of art that have more than one artist. Like, yes, we like to call this a Mel Gibson movie, but mm. Mel Gibson is not the only person who created this. He directed it and he started it and he made sure that it got made. He didn't write it. He didn't film it. He didn't edit it. You know, and like so many hundreds of other people acted in it as well. And so if you blacklist him, then you're also blacklisting all of those other people who are involved. And and so it, I think it's it's easy to forget that that's a thing whenever you've got one person's face and name attached to a project, especially when problems arise like this. But I think if you can get to the point where you can recognize that the art is bigger than the artist, than who we're saying is the artist, then it becomes a little more palatable and you realize that, you know, you're not supporting this one single person. You're supporting this whole oh, community of people who made things happen and they should not all be punished just because of something horrible that one really horrible person did. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, that's really true when you're talking about a film, you know, like, Film is such a collaboration, even though the director and the star have so much power in that field. Yeah, there are hundreds of people who are involved in the production of this and who contributed to it on creative levels. And like you said, the writers and I said that it won a bunch of uh, Academy Awards and it also won for like cinematography, like you said, the people behind the camera for editing, uh, although I have 
a lot. Of, I don't think it should have won for that. But, um, <laughs> but, but yeah. yeah it, I mean, it won for best makeup, and that was not obviously Mel Gibson doing that. So no. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, if it's a if it's a book written by one person and self published or something like that, I'd be like, yeah, forget it. Like I'm not right. I'm not engaging. Or if it's a painting that was painted by one person, mm-hmm. um, it, when you can specifically say yes, this is supporting just one really terrible human being, then then you can choose not to support it. But when it's more than that, sometimes it's it's different. Yep. And the cultural impact of this, like you said, I mean, this whole movie is like a meme in a lot of ways, like the freedom thing and and all of that. So, right. Yep. It's unavoidable, but I think as long as you're honest about it, it's okay. Right. Okay. Well, now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's actually talk about the movie itself. <laughs> Are there any like kind of big themes that, that stuck out to you? I mean, because there's a lot going on in this movie, and it is a very, very long I mean, this is a three-hour long movie from 1995 before three-hour movies were a thing. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And I... Th- Again, I think this movie really set the stage for that kind of stuff, right? Like I mentioned Lord of the Rings, um, which actually went into production not too long after this. Because if you think about it, they filmed all three of those movies at one time. And the first one like came out in, what, 2001 or something like that? So I think yeah. the success yeah, of a, of a three-hour war epic was like really had New Line Studios and other places thinking like, oh, we could do really long action movies and win awards and make lots of money. We should do that. Right. Um, yeah. It, man, it's too long, though. It really is too long. <laughs> when I was watching this, I kept thinking about um, masculinity. And I think part of that was because of the Mel Gibson problem. And I feel like it has a lot to say kind of in response to things that came before it, you know, like the late 80s and early 90s were these male dominated action movies, you know, like um, Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, those kind of movies where you had like a one man wrecking crew, like a Superman of um, physical ability and fighting prowess, who is also kind of a dummy. And, and but it didn't matter because he didn't need to be smart. He was just so powerful and unstoppable. And this movie said, what if the action hero was really smart? Like mm-hmm. that's a more virtuous way uh, for men to be in a more inclusive way, uh, you know, to include like really smart men, which is also kind of nice because William Wallace is like this big national hero in Scotland. Of course, we don't I think we know about him in America from this movie, but in Scotland, this this movie did really, really well, you know, which you would expect because he's kind of like the big national hero there. So to say like, oh, your big national hero was a badass and he was really smart uh, probably helped this movie out quite a bit. And it, early on in the movie, that what got me thinking about this, the dad says to him, You know you can fight. But it's our wits that make us men. And I think the whole movie is kind of about that. You see these really smart men like Longshanks. He's uh, he's very shrewd, but he has no principles. Like he mm-hmm. fires on his own men. He is willing to wholesale slaughter children and women and uh, destroy entire towns to make his point. He's willing to like institute a policy of rape on a national scale to 
you know, win his war by eugenics. The guy Mm -hmm. is evil, (laughs) but he's smart. And so smart's not good enough. You have to have noble, you know, uh, principles. You have to be willing to fight. You have to be good enough at the fighting. And so I think that's kind of like the picture of masculinity that the that the picture puts out there as virtuous. But there are lots of problems like hiding in the corners of this movie because of that. Like, for mm-hmm. example, the the queer prince is a stereotype of this like inadequate, emasculated man who he's villainized in the movie, but he's also like shown to be very ineffectual. He's not smart or badass or noble. And, and I feel like that's tied to his sexuality in a way that's really problematic. Okay. And then there's also like, in terms of masculinity, the women in this story pretty much only exist for the men. They're either objects of desire or pawns for to motivate the men in the plot or to like the the French princess like exists to fall in love with William Wallace and then kind of stick it to Longshanks at the end in terms of like your son couldn't even get me pregnant and I'm pregnant with your enemy's baby like that's Mm -hmm. the point of her uh, which is a big problem there's you know and then there's also like no people of color in this movie which is super inaccurate um, to the time mm-hmm. period and a big problem too. So, I mean, masculinity was on my mind when I watched the movie. I think I tend to be a little bit more forgiving about things like this in movies like this because it's a movie about a romanticized version of the 13th century written in 1995. Mm-hmm. And so is it problematic? Absolutely, it's problematic. But was it problematic in 1995? No. Mm. I mean, it was. We just didn't know it was. Right, <laughs> if yeah. If that makes sense. Um, and so I, I tend to I, I am probably more forgiving than I should be on, on things like that. And I, and I feel certain that there have been movies that we've talked about even on this show where I have been completely unforgiving about things like that. And and I don't know what the difference is to me unless it's just I ended up enjoying this movie. And so I'm going to forgive it. And if I don't enjoy it, I'm not going to, which is probably a little more accurate than it should be. <laughs> Wow, learning a lot about myself today. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's something to be said for charm and for telling your story well. You know, yeah. If you're doing a good job at it, it is easier to overlook those things. It's a you're. That's a really good point, though. Of talking about the time that it was made, you can't interpret everything by today's standards. Uh, when this movie is what, like twenty years old or older? Yeah, we we talked about that. We had. Lonnie Diane Rich on our on our show that I do with Anya and she pointed that out and I always try to keep that in mind we talked about moonlighting and she was like hey this was made in the 80s and it's pretty good for when it was made and it what it really shows us is a snapshot of that time and place and the underlying assumptions of the storytellers and it tells us something about ourselves then and tells us something about ourselves now and I do try to keep that in mind when I do the criticism you know, of stories. So it's really good to point Mm -hmm. that out. This tells us something about the 90s and it tells us something about now. Yeah. And and I did actually, I wanted to point out though that I'm not sure that the movie was intentionally trying to say that, I don't don't think you use this word, but virtuous men are violent. Mm -hmm. Um, Just because with the exception of the very problematic prince, we didn't encounter any nonviolent men. 
the nobles, the non-nobles, the people we were rooting for, the people we were like rooting against, bar none, they were all extraordinarily violent, like murderous violence. (laughs) (laughs) And so I feel like that's more of a statement on like you were talking about masculinity than it is on virtue. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, Yeah, that this is like an acceptable way for men to behave, probably even like a good way for men to behave, Mm -hmm. to be these badass warriors. But it's also like the Middle Ages in the middle of a war. So yeah, everybody's going to be killing each other. Mm -hmm. And nobody's going to be saying we can't do this. Yeah, I mean, because even even the little boys at the beginning were violent, like their Mm -hmm. playfulness was punching each other full on in the face. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was confused by that at first, and then I realized they were just playing. Like, who plays like that? <laughs> Apparently, little boys in 13th century Scotland, according yeah. to this movie. So, I think it's trying to make out Highlanders to be badasses from the time that they're born, you know. And maybe that's a stereotype. I have no idea. I've never been outside of the United States, certainly not to Scotland. So, yeah, my only frame of comparison is Outlander, mm-hmm. which of course was 400 years later, but still takes place in the Scottish Highlands. And it's different. Yeah. I mean, William Wallace <laughs> is no Jamie Fraser. <laughs> <laughs> that should be um, on the back of the box. <laughs> <laughs> which box? <laughs> Braveheart or <laughs> Outlander? <laughs> it could be both. <laughs> I mean, I do accept, though, that I understand that this is a highly fictionalized and highly romanticized version of medieval Scotland. And and so I try to kind of take what the movie says with a grain of salt. Yeah, definitely. I was thinking, though, especially like when we get to the end of that love story about because it works on me every time, like I said, you know, as many times as I've seen this movie. And it's been a lot of years since I've seen it. Um, I think, like you said, since The Passion of the Christ, I might have seen this movie one time because I was like, <laughs> I was stuck in a garage sale and I was like, what can I watch that's three hours long and will get me through this garage sale? <laughs> okay. Yeah. I was the person taking the money and nothing was happening. There were no customers. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I was thinking at the at the end of that love story is um, Murrin, who I think that's how you say her name, Wallace's wife. Mm-hmm. Is she fridged? Um, and, you know, for people who maybe don't know what fridged means, that means when a female character is um, killed to motivate a man, usually in a revenge plot. And, and we say that because there is this idea of like stuffing women's dead bodies into fridges. Um, so we say fridged. Mm-hmm. But she feels like a full character to me by the time that she dies. And to me, like when a fridged character is someone who often doesn't have a name and and has no agency or, you know, any characterization of any kind. And to me, Murren is a character. She chooses Wallace. She, I mean, I, I can see the mechanics of the plot. Like she's there for, to fall in love with him and to help us fall in love with him. But I don't know, like the whole, the whole thing's a story. Like, of course we're going to be manipulated. I, I don't know. Like, is she fridged? I can't decide. Well, when I when I saw that you had this question, I had to sit and think about it. And it, it's a tough one because you're right. She she did have agency. You know, I was cheering for her when the magistrate or whoever was trying to rape her. And she like 
spit his cheek off. That's I was great. like, yes, like you do you, Murren. It was fantastic. <laughs> but honestly, I think I think she was. I think she was fridged because if you look through my notes, and let me just tell you, I had 133 notes in this it movie. It is so good. It is so long. <laughs> um, like, I spent a fair amount of time at the beginning complaining about the love story that you enjoy so much because I went in expecting a movie about a war and got a good 40 to 45 minutes of a love story right off the bat. And I knew that this eventually moves into war. And so, like, my questions were why are we watching this? Is she really going to be this important to the rest of the movie that we had to spend 45 minutes building up this relationship? And I thought it was taking up too much time and like this doesn't need to be here. And then all of a sudden it clicked in my head and I literally wrote down and suddenly I realized why we needed that love story. Mm, yeah. And here's the thing. Murren is a fictional character created solely to give Wallace a more relatable reason to go to war. The movie would have been far less interesting if Wallace went to war because of politics and politics alone the way he did in real life. I mean, yes, he did have a wife. Her name was Marion. She did die. But that was years before the rebellion started. It did not drive him to start this rebellion. It was in a revenge scenario. Murren was created solely to die to give the audience a more relatable reason to enjoy this war story. And because of that, I have to say, yes, I think she was fridged. Even though she was a well-written female character, mostly, who did have her own agency, they created her to kill her. That's a great point. I didn't, um, I don't think I realized that she was made up to, I don't know a lot about the actual history of this, which is weird because like usually that's the kind of stuff that I'm into, but Mm -hmm. um yeah. Well, I looked it up because when you were asking this question, I was like, well, mm-hmm. this is based on a historical like story. Like William Wallace was real. So if his wife really was killed and that's what spurred him to go on, then obviously, no, she wasn't fridged because we're just telling a story that happened. And so I was looking up. Did he have a wife? Was she killed? Is this what really started his quest for freedom? And when I realized it wasn't, I felt like that was a pretty good clear answer yeah that's a great point (laughs) that that puts me in mind of um like the iliad um where helen of troy is kidnapped so to say by paris and uh, from sparta to troy and then all of greece goes with war to troy to rescue her um which is like homer doing the exact same thing he makes up helen damsels her in order to explain a war of aggression from Greece onto Troy to make it like, oh, this is a romantic thing instead of this is wholesale slaughter of a city state by all of the other mm-hmm. city states of Greece. Like it's it's kind of almost exactly the same thing. So all that to say, like, this is a very old trick of writers to uh, to fridge a woman to make us feel like, oh, yeah, you Blank check, man. Go kill people. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's a little bit more than that. I think I think it speaks a little bit to the human condition because it I mean, it worked for I mean, and you, you have said you really enjoy the love story like the love story speaks to you. You mm-hmm. kind of get immersed into it and you're there as they're falling in love. And that's a thing 
that humans enjoy. You know, you get these feelings of serotonin and dopamine when you experience love, when you watch other people experience love. It's warm and fuzzy. And I found myself when I was watching this movie, I felt like I was too people like there were two people inside my head warring with each other when I was watching this movie (laughs) and kind of a little after halfway through it stopped and I was just able to experience the movie but I have like I am a hopeless romantic I am nine times out of ten I am always gonna go for the like fairy tale love story princess thing like I want a happily ever after and so I loved the romance at the beginning. Like the story was beautiful and it was sweet and I I wanted them to get together and I was rooting for Wallace to win the war because of that love that started everything. But then I also had like the analytic part of me who's watching this like to criticize it so that we can talk about it on the show. And that part of me got frustrated with how long the movie was and and how the story was written because there are some problems there and it, but there is that part of me who just, I love the love story too. And I think that's why writers continue to do that sort of thing because they know that it's going to like speak to people. Now it doesn't, love stories don't have to end with fridging. Like that's the piece that I mm-hmm. hate, but, but the love story itself was good. It was nice. They did a really good job with it. That flower like gets me every time when she gives it to him. And then when he gives it back to her and I'm like, oh, oh my God. And through the whole thing, <laughs> he's got the, the, it probably has a name, like a Scottish name. I don't know what it is, but like the handkerchief that she sewed or whatever that mm-hmm. um, keeps going from person to person and comes back to him at the end. And then he drops it and goes oh, it's like, oh my God. But <laughs> it does kind of ruined the whole thing for me and it always has with the um french princess i'm like this is not okay like you can no do not kiss her what are you doing i hate that oh man my notes for that like literally i was typing don't have sex don't have sex don't have sex (laughs) and then my next line was all caps no 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 (laughs) i was so upset I was like, he is spitting on the memory of Murren, who he's doing all of this for. Mm -hmm. And it was after that that he has the conversation with Hamish, where Hamish is just like, you're just doing this because you think she's looking down on you. And he's like, well, I know she's looking down on me, just like your dad's looking down on you. And so he is still like calling her memory as what's spurring him on, even though he just had an affair with this other woman. Mm hmm. Oh, like you can't do that in a good love story. (laughs) Yeah, that's the problem. Like I could, I could, you know, if it's real life, like she died and, you know, life goes on and you fall in love with other people. But I don't know, like it just feels wrong with how intense everything is. You're just like, that's kind of a bastard move. I mean, it's, it's cool in the end, you know, when she's whispering into Longshank's ear, about everything, you're like, ooh, yeah, die knowing that, you bastard. But <laughs> at the same time, like, I don't know. I never like it. I've never liked it. Yeah. Well, should I tell you the historical inaccuracy that was going on there? Because Princess Isabella was three years old in real what? life while no. this was happening. Oh my God. <laughs> 
I did not know. That. Yeah, she was she was only three, so she had like no part in any of this. <laughs> she was not yet married to the prince, like nothing. That's so um, funny. Yeah. Oh my god. All right. <laughs> I thought you would enjoy that. <laughs> Let's take a minute. I want to talk about the story itself because okay. honestly, even though this is a movie that you can really get into and you can really get emotionally invested into the characters. If you step back and kind of remove some of that emotion and you look at the skeleton of the story, I think it's really poorly written. Mm -hmm. I got frustrated because it leaves out so much information. Like right after, like I think even before we see the first battle, like the first serious battle when just William Wallace and his merry band of men are like kind of, roaming the countryside and and they've defeated some of the nobles like rumors have spread so far and wide about him like when he he rides up and he says i'm william wallace and they're like you can't be he's not tall enough william wallace is seven feet tall Mm -hmm. you know william wallace can you know bound a mountain in one giant leap we haven't seen anything that would lead us to believe that there is a good reason for there to be rumors like that spread you know, we're supposed to be involved and invested in supporting his greatness based on just the love and passion that we saw in that early love story. And that's supposed to carry us through the rest of the movie. And I wish they had actually shown his greatness. You know, if he was really great enough to inspire all of those Scotsmen to follow him, then they should have at least shown us some of that so that it was believable. Because honestly, Based on what we got in the movie, I have no idea what he did before that first big battle. Like, why were they following him? Why why did rumors spread about his greatness and how ruthless and badass he was? We don't know. They didn't tell us. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, it's totally informed, right? And I'm trying to think, like, how how could you fix this problem? And I don't even think it would be that hard because you have, like, those conversations between Robert the Bruce and his father, the leper, you know, where he's talking about Wallace and you could do like, I'm, I'm imagining right now, like that conversation and then kind of intercut it where he's talking about like, Oh, this Wallace, he fights for passion and, and all of this stuff and intercut it with like some fighting scenes. And then maybe intercut that with some peasants talking about, did you hear Wallace defeated our Lord? Mm-hmm. And uh, in and you're like, oh yeah, he struck him down with one blow. Oh, I heard he shot him with lightning bolts from his ass, you know, <laughs> or something like that. Yes, all we needed was one good montage during mm-hmm. one of Robert the Bruce's conversations with his father. Mm-hmm. That's all we needed. If they had just inserted that into the movie, it would have felt more believable. Now, I will say they gave him some damn inspirational speeches, and so it worked well enough. Oh, those speeches are great. But I, I wish it was better. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point because, yeah, we have to – I think it's even confusing, and I saw this in your um, in your notes, and I definitely felt it the first time I watched it. When you get to that battle scene and you're seeing the Scottish nobles that we've never seen before, and you're like, who – which side is this? And who mm-hmm. is – so is he going to fight his own people? What is even happening? And it really takes that scene like a good 10 minutes – to cohere in a way where you're like, oh, okay, I get it. This is that, you know, this is that side. This is the other side. Yeah, and this is what's going on because it's clear that like the Scottish nobles don't even intend to fight. 
They just want the men there so that they have a better negotiating position to get, you know, more land or whatever for themselves. Yeah. So it's not even clear what the dynamics of the scene are. And then once Wallace shows up, everything is informed, like you say. And so all of that is very rickety. And it's kind of only saved by Mel Gibson's charisma and the and the good writing of the speech. Uh, and James Horner's like excellent music kind of pushing everything up. But yeah, the actual mm-hmm. writing and structure of the story is not good. Yeah. Now, I I totally like kind of get what they were going for. So when Randall Wallace kind of decided he wanted to tell the story of William Wallace, he took a lot of inspiration from an epic poem written by Blind Harry. I don't know who that is. <laughs> I don't either. He was a 15th century kind of minstrel or poet, and he wrote this very long poet that I'm not going to read the name of the title because I don't think I can pronounce it, but it was more commonly known as the Wallace. It's a very epic poem that recounted the life of William Wallace, written almost 200 years after William Wallace died. And so it's very largely fictionalized, but there are lines in the poem that talk about those rumors and say things like, he was seven feet tall. Or he shot lightning out of whatever. So I, I get that he was like pulling inspiration from that and he was deliberately trying to call back to that source material. But if he was going to do that, he should have given us more sure. is all I'm saying. Now, let me ask you this, because we're both American and, and whatnot. If we were both Scottish and we were in Scotland, I wonder if this would even occur to you. Like change the context of this and have it be about George Washington instead and reference things that are famous about George Washington. And it it would be like, well, everybody knows that you grow up knowing that of course, everybody in the crowd knows it. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's a good point. Like as a cultural hero, would we need to see knowledge? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a really, that's a really good point. I guess but, it would depend on who the intended audience for this movie was. Yeah. It did premiere in Scotland. Like the world premiere was in Scotland. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that either. I, I don't know all this stuff. Yeah. You know way more about this movie than I do. <laughs> all I did was read the Wikipedia page. Gotcha. <laughs> well, several Wikipedia pages, actually. Um, so I think, though, that if you're relying on cultural knowledge for your story to make sense, then you're not that great of a writer. I think mm-hmm. I'm going to double down on that. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, because even like I referenced the Iliad and even in the Iliad, it takes time to tell you, even though these are the most famous heroes of all of, you know, Greekdom, it takes time to spotlight each one of them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's how you write. And and uh, like I said, the scaffolding in this movie is not great for a lot of moments like that. And the battles run together a little bit. It's it's confusing. And I know like the little bit that I do know about the historical accuracy of this movie is that it's not very accurate. Like some of the tactics and stuff are are in the wrong battles. There are whole Mm -hmm. battles that are left out that were more important than the battles that were left in. And yeah, all kinds of stuff didn't happen the way that they showed in the movie. And, you know, you want to tell your story, you want to put your story first when you're writing a story. And even when you're adapting history, 
I don't think that you need to be a slave to it, but it seems like the writer just like was doing his own thing and using William Wallace as kind of a glaze over the whole thing to tell a story that he was more interested in telling and not doing a great job at even telling the story that he was interested in. Right. But it was a beautiful movie to experience. And so I think the the videographer, the cinematographer, the James Horner who did the score, I think they masterfully blended together all of the things that were in this story to give a compelling, moving story to the audience, which is why, you know, probably on most people's first watch, they wouldn't even pick up on those things. Like, if I hadn't been watching it with my critic hat on, I don't think I would have noticed because I was so into the story and so emotionally invested in William Wallace's story and wanting him to win, I don't think it would have occurred to me at all. And mm-hmm. I don't think it has. I Because I honestly haven't seen in any of the criticisms that I've seen of this movie, I haven't seen anybody talk about the actual narrative. I've seen them talk about the historical inaccuracies. I've seen them talk about the homophobia. I've seen them talk about just Mel Gibson being a terrible person. <laughs> but I haven't seen them talk about the narrative itself. Yeah. And I think that like those parts where it's most shaky is also the parts where you get the most spectacle. Because like this is kind of a time before CG special effects were mm-hmm. ramped up to the level that they are. And so those armies, like that's all a bunch of extras and you know the camera shots are wide and huge and those people come crashing together and you get a a few of those really big medieval battles in a way that had not been done since like you know the filmic times of Spartacus and and those other like sandals epics from that time and I feel like narratively speaking those are the weakest parts of the movie but it doesn't matter because you're getting that great music. You're getting those huge epic shots, mm-hmm. you know, and you're getting like the close up duels of of our main characters. And also that spectacle, like we said earlier, of the violence that was not normal in theaters at that time. All just kind of like glazes over the weaknesses in, in, the, uh, in the writing. And I would suspect also that in the script, I haven't read the script, but what's very common for things like this is to get to that point in the script and then for it to simply say, like, have one blank page and say they fight and then, <laughs> yeah. you know, leave it up to the choreographers and stuff like that and not incorporate the action into the storytelling. And so that's a place where you can run into problems in action movies, uh, narratively speaking. But yeah. Like you said, I, I think it is a really well-told story. Okay, we have been talking about Braveheart for a really long time. So <laughs> let's move into kind of our favorite performances, if there are favorite moments, lines. I feel like, I mean, you said this was one of your favorite movies in high school, so I think you probably have a few things to talk about here. Oh, definitely. I, I really love um, James Cosmo. Speaking of Game of Thrones, he's like the leader of the... Um, the guys up on the wall where Jon Snow goes um, in the first mm-hmm. couple seasons. Uh, he plays Campbell, uh, who's Hamish's dad. Uh, just the, the <laughs> tough old badass who, like, he gets shot with an arrow 
and and they're trying to help him and he like slaps him away and breaks the arrow himself and then nobody Continues wants to, to fight yeah <laughs> nobody wants to cauterize the wound and then he knocks out the guy who does i just love that dude he gets his hand cut off and then kills the guy who cut off his hand and like he's unstoppable mm-hmm. um he's so great uh hamish is great i uh i really love the music too it's just you know James Horner does an amazing job with, I, I feel like he gives the movie life and emotion in a way that if you take that score out, it just doesn't work. Cause there are long parts of this movie with no dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Just close-ups of people's faces or action and everything that we're feeling about the movie emanates from that music. And it's really beautiful. Oh yeah. This is one of the best like musical scores that I've heard. Mm-hmm. It was gorgeous, like to the point where I was noticing music in places I wouldn't ordinarily notice it. And it, it's funny because now I, I have a Pixel 2 for my phone. And part of the, the Google OS that's in the Pixel 2 now is if the phone recognizes that, that recognizes that there's music playing, it will, if it can tell you what it is, it will display it on the screen. Even if the phone is asleep like at the very bottom these little white words will pop up and it'll tell you the title and the artist of the song it's almost creepy and so with soundtracks it actually has spoiled me a couple times so like i knew that murrin and william were going to get married because that the song that started playing like while they started their courtship was called the secret wedding Oh no! <laughs> um, and so, like, like it was like the courtship of Murrin, and then the very next song was the secret wedding, and it kept doing that like all the way through. And I kept paying attention though because the music kept drawing my attention because it is just beautiful. Like, I don't really care what it's called. I don't care that it's related to Braveheart. I just want to listen to it. It's really good. That that reminds me of a famous music spoiler. Um, like a week before. Star Wars The Phantom Menace came out. The soundtrack came out with named tracks just like that. And the final track on it is um, The Death of Qui-Gon Jinn. Oh, and no. You're like, you're like, what? What are you doing? <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Yeah. The Secret Wedding. That's funny. I like that. <laughs> Another thing that I think about when I watch this movie is the way that I saw it for the first time. I went to my girlfriend's house um, and watched it with her family. And because we never would have watched this in my house. I think we both grew up like very conservative Christian households. And this Mm -hmm. movie would not have flown in my house. (laughs) And I remember like my eyes bugging out when they took the the two VHS tapes to watch this movie. I was (laughs) what? How long is this movie? (laughs) But it's so funny to think about VHS tapes. But the when I watched it for the first time, they had all seen it already. And the oldest brother in the family kept pausing the movie over and over. And this is how I saw it the first time. And going frame by frame every time that there was like a special effect or violence to show how they did the camera tricks to achieve the the you know, the extreme violence. And Mm -hmm. so it'll be like an actor will be there and then the frame will pop and it will be like a mannequin. And it's really obviously a mannequin when you have the frame frozen like that. And then 
whatever the damage, the battle damage is, will already be there. And then the sword will like swing into the frame. But it's so fast, you know, at normal speed, you'll never catch it. But that's all I can see now every single time I watch this movie, whenever, you know, that that scene that you talked about where the guy's head gets smashed in when he's getting revenge on the Scottish lords for um, betraying him in the battle and he's up there in the guy's bedroom on the horse. Like that's a very dramatic moment and the music like sells it and the way that Mel Gibson looks like a grim badass and everything. But if you actually stop to logically think about what's happening, it's like, how did you get that horse up at the top of the tower into a guy's bedroom without waking him up? And then he woke up the moment you hit him in the face. And then his plan is to jump out of the tower. Why are there doors there? To... (laughs) into like a big lake that I don't understand why that's there either. But then if you watch that moment and I'm totally like ruining this moment now for everybody, but if you watch that moment, it, it goes in like slow motion, Mel Gibson or the stunt double falling from that really high height into the water. And it does this shot from the door down and you can see the horse land on its side and float in the water. And it's like, that's not a horse. That's not a horse. Horses don't do that. That's styrofoam. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> I enjoy. I have to ask. How how long did it take to watch this three hour movie when oh it my kept God. getting paused? <laughs> it took all day. It was and like this, a, oh a my whole gosh. Saturday. Yeah, if this was the first time you ever saw it, how on earth did you ever watch it again? <laughs> I'm weird though. Like I kind of enjoy that memory. Um, you know, looking back on it, it didn't ruin the movie. I think the movie was still so powerful for me in terms of that love story. I, you know, I have said this many times, like I am such a cheap date when it comes to stories. Like I will just buy whatever you're selling. Like I am so easily convinced by the worst storytelling. I was brought up on comic books and like, you know, He-Man and Masters of the Universe. Like I'm here for it. Like tell me your bad story (laughs) and I will believe you. Um, So I don't know. It sold me. But I do kind of like fondly remember my high school girlfriend and her weird family every time I watch this movie. And it's part of the experience for me. Yeah, (laughs) that's sweet. (laughs) What about you? Like, what are the what are the lines that really stuck out for you? Because it's got some funny moments, right? It does have some really funny moments. The insane Irish dude who joins his cause. He's so good. And um. You know, he asks, you know, will I get to kill some Englishmen? And then there's a little skirmish. And, you know, Mel Gibson is like, if you fight for me, you get to kill Englishmen. And the insane Irish dude is just like, excellent. (laughs) You know, I just, I cracked up. I think I actually paused it so I could write that line down and get it right. Um, And then the payoff of every time he kept saying Ireland was his island. Mm -hmm. I Like, he just, like, you, at first you just think he's crazy. Like, this one dude. He's saying Ireland is his island. No, this is not a thing. And then he just kept saying it. And then at the end, when you realize the payoff is that all of these Irish conscriptionists who the king thinks are going to fight for him have totally just walked up and are like, hey, dude, what's up? Yeah, we're here to fight for you. Don't worry. It's cool. That was fantastic. It's such a good moment. And then I guess some of the more serious stuff, I think William Wallace, while he's in prison awaiting his torture... You know, and he's talking to the princess and she's trying to get him to 
confess so that he can just die painlessly and, and very quickly. And, you know, he just looks at her and he says, every man dies, not every man really lives. Hmm. And I just think that is wonderful advice, like for every person, you know, there's a difference between being alive and living. And I, I like that this story took the time to remind us of that. And then as much as I hate to say this, given the conversation that we've already had about Mel Gibson, his acting all the way through this was spot on. His accent was terrible, but I kind of <laughs> understand that he, he did the best he could, especially with all of those long, inspiring speeches that he had to do, was considering the studio forced him to take this part. But his facial expressions, you know, his crazy, like, war cry faces when, when he's, like, charging at the other army when Robert the Bruce defeats him or mm. betrays him and he just like sinks to his knees and you can see on his face how broken he is in that moment. It just, everything that he did, I thought was spectacular. He is really talented. He is. He's just awful person. Like, right. Ah, like I it's wish that it wasn't him. <laughs> It is. It's it's infuriating. How can somebody so talented be so awful? Like, I don't understand. Um, but I have to give credit just for the acting because it it was moving and it was it was good. It was good. Yeah, he's he's great. <clears throat> and that's part of what sells that love story for me too, is like, man, I want somebody to look at me the way that Mel Gibson is looking at Murrin, you know. Yes. <laughs> the total adoration on his face. So is there anything else we need to talk about Braveheart? I was doing some reading about Braveheart yesterday to kind of prepare for this, and I was absolutely shocked and astounded to learn that in February of this year, a freaking sequel to Braveheart was announced. Oh, Have you yeah. Heard about this? I've heard there's a thing called After Braveheart, isn't there? I, I don't know. Maybe that's I, I not what you're not talking come about. That. No, they're actually they're doing a sequel about Robert the Bruce. About oh, wow. his life after he became king and how um, some I, – I wish I had this in front of me right now. But it's about how his wife or some woman in the court or something has to save him. And the actor who played Robert the Bruce in Braveheart is reprising the role for the sequel. Oh, yeah. Angus McFadden. Yeah. He's really good. Yeah. He is really good. Um, I, I struggled – with the character of Robert the Bruce because I was really enjoying the actor and he did come to a point of repentance at the end. Like he kind of got redeemed, but Oh my gosh, I hated Robert the Bruce through most of the movie, (laughs) but it would be interesting because I don't, Mel Gibson's not attached to the sequel at all. And so I'm curious about it. I really am. Wow. So they're setting it. That's interesting to set it in the same timeline. If you're going to use the same, actor reprising a role yeah yeah because uh, i mean robert the bruce did become king of scotland and so they're gonna like go forward just a little bit and it's gonna be set during that reign Um, i'd watch that i I think i would watch it too i i looked up that after after braveheart is a documentary that's what it is um okay not worth watching um (laughs) Yeah, that's cool. I'm glad that you told me about that. Okay, there's there's one other thing that I want to ask you. Um, this is a thing Matthew and I have kind of started doing this. Like Matthew and Mandy make a movie better. 
Okay. <laughs> like, and, and we also we had a question on Facebook from uh, Drew Hallam, and he asked, "What is the worst part that you'd remove from the movie?" So, what would you change in Braveheart? Because we both think it's way too long. Yeah. So, what are there things that we could take out and still preserve the integrity of the movie and make it better? I think I really think that you could remove the entire succession subplot with um the prince and the and his marriage to the french princess and mm-hmm. like everything related to that you really don't need it because this is a story about william wallace versus longshanks like mm-hmm. you know in the protagonist antagonist sense I think that would save you a lot of time right there. And it would also remove that part that we both don't like where it messes up the romantic, you know, right. like motivation of his war. And that would probably save you a good 30 minutes of stuff right there. I think yeah. at least. I, I agree with you. I also think I would probably take out most of the interactions between Robert the Bruce and his father. Mm hmm. It's weird that Robert the Bruce is like the only three-dimensional supporting character in the entire movie. And I don't yeah. know why. But every single one of those interactions was essentially the same. Robert the Bruce saying, William Wallace is passionate and I want to be more like him. His father saying, no, you can't be more like him if you want to be king and you have to be king, so you need to betray him. Like that went back and forth, back and forth, like God, how many times did we see a scene with them? Like five or six times? Yeah, it's more than three. Yeah, yeah, we didn't need that many. Um, When we still could have had um, the betrayal, we still could have had the second betrayal at the end that was the father doing it and not Robert the Bruce. Mm -hmm. But we didn't need the redundancy every time. Like they kind of hit us over the head with this leper father is evil. Definitely. And, we didn't need it. and so I think we could have cut out some of that. And if we had cut out that the Prince subplot, we probably could have gotten this movie down to a solid two hours. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about how those scenes just repeat themselves. I do like the part in that where he says, my hate dies with you. And mm-hmm. you could you probably keep the first one in that one and still get the right. point across. Yeah. Yep. That's great. Yeah. You should be an editor. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I usually can't do this. Oh, usually yeah. I'm like, oh, well, I didn't like the movie, but I don't know how to make it better. <laughs> that happens to me a lot. <laughs> this movie's way too but, long. Yeah, this one I had some very definite opinions about. So, Well, if you'd like to join the conversation, you can use the hashtag PCDeprived on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at EloquentGushing. You can also email us at podcast at eloquentgushing.com. You can find each of us on Twitter. I'm at Mandy K. And I'm at Chipper Allen. Uh, you can check out my podcast uh, with my co-host Anya. Uh, it's called Hollowed Ground Storycast, wherever a podcast can be found. Uh, if you like Braveheart, I would say check out our episode about Kingdom of Heaven. It's got um, some of the same actors in it and also people with leprosy and the Middle Ages and epic <laughs> war battles. <laughs> it's very similar. Um, okay. We discuss stories on Hollywood Ground Storycast that changed our lives and the lives of our guests. Uh, Mandy was on there, which was great. And we also have a podcast that's about the Stars adaptation of American Gods called Shadows and Shamblers. Yes. If you like that show, then you definitely need to be 
listening to, to Alan and Anya talk about it. It's fantastic. So Pop Culturally Deprived is 100% funded by listeners like you through our Patreon page. So any amount that you can give will give you access to exclusive content while also helping us do more and develop more shows. To find out more, you can visit patreon.com slash eloquentgushing. If you like what we do, please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, and please subscribe to our show. If you want to keep up to date, you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter, and you can find the link to that on our homepage at eloquentgushing.com. Matthew and I will be back next week with another episode where we'll talk about The Dark Crystal with Amanda from the Wine and Three Quarters podcast. Until next time, I'm Mandy Kay. And I'm ready to present myself before this army, put my head between my legs, and kiss my own arse. Pop Culturally Deprived is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, visit eloquentgushing.com or find us on Twitter at Eloquent Gushing.